0: Well, good morning, fellowship, great to see you. Hey, would you stand with us as we prepare our hearts to worship? I've been out on vacation this last week down in Hot Springs with my family, got to have some good time to just rest and get to catch up with some good people that I love. And I hope that this morning is the same for you as you come to worship with the people of God, your church family. So would you lift your voice high this morning? I wanna encourage you to do that. Sing loud. Sing with all you have as we sing praises to Jesus.
1: We're heaven spun creations, His pride and adoration, treasures woven by His love. His careful hands, they hold us safe within His promise.
2: We're heaven-spun creations His pride and adoration Treasures woven by His love His careful hands they hold us Safe within His promise Of calling and of destiny We sing and remember And I will sing of. all you've done all he's done and I
0: Good
3: morning, fellowship. My name is Derek Horn, and I serve here at Fellowship in the Springdale community role. And so, if you are living in Springdale, please see myself or Beth Davies after the service in the foyer. And we'd love to get you plugged into all things that are going on here at Fellowship in Springdale. So please check out the QR code behind me with your phone, and we'll let you know about all the wonderful things that are happening here at Fellowship. Hasn't this Hebrew study been awesome? Man, Nick Rowland last week was absolutely incredible, teaching on all of the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Some like to call it the Hall of Faith. So I've spent some time teaching our sons about the baseball and football halls of fame, and I was personally convicted how more important it is to reiterate the great leaders in the Hebrews 11, Hall of Faith. And so Hebrews chapter 12 carries on the narrative about these great believers. And let's read it together this morning in the message. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way All these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race that we are in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God, our Father. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the goal. And I can't think a better way of keeping your eyes on Jesus than serving those in need. And so a great way to do that is through what we call the backpack drive. And so we're partnering with Samaritan Community Church to provide colored pencils and loose notebook paper for children in need. So we have bins in the foyer after the service um, this Sunday and next. And another great way to keep our eyes on Jesus is if you are new here, we have something called the meet and greet. So July 25th, after the 930 and 11 o'clock service in the family center, we're gonna have what's called the meet and greet. And so I don't know about you, but I grew up in a more traditional um, foundation of my faith. And so the first time I showed up at fellowship, I thought, where's the altar call? How are people gonna get saved? How do you come to Christ? And so I also thought, why isn't the pastor in a fancy suit? And then I also thought, who is the pastor? It's kind of confusing, right? So that's what the meet and greet's for. At Fellowship, we want to introduce you to some of our basic foundations of the faith, who we are, mission and vision, but also introduce you to other new, new folks here at Fellowship as well, and to help us keep our eyes on Jesus here in Northwest Arkansas, but also the world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that we get the opportunity this morning and the rest of our lives to keep our eyes on you. And Father, we ask for your strength to do that. And we know we we acknowledge that we need that to do that daily in our marriages, in our families, at our workplace. And we just ask you to fill us Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and to continue in the theme of fixing our eyes on Jesus this
0: morning, I want to encourage you to do that. If you need to take a moment to just posture your heart or posture yourself even physically with open hands or whatever it looks like for you to worship, I just wanna invite you to do that as we begin to sing this morning. Would you stand and sing with us? as we-
2: articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry. Then from north to south and east to west, we hear Christ be mad. Shout a phrase this morning, we sing. And oh, Christ be magnified.
0: your prayer this morning we would make Jesus the greatest thing above all things. That our hearts would stay faithful and true to him. That we would see him for his goodness, his love, his joy.
2: Would you lift this up with me? And I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice cause you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. i hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with you. Cause death is just a doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you in your... singing my song will be You
0: may have a seat. You may find yourself here this morning in a darker place. And if I'm being honest, that's been a part of my story for the last little bit. Life just feels heavy sometimes. And I've found great hope in this song. I heard a quote recently from a podcast that that God's darkness is a canvas for His light to be displayed. Isn't that beautiful? I find so much hope in that, that He's using this this part of my story to make Himself known, to make Himself big. So this morning as we sing, you might find yourself in that same place. And would these words just bring encouragement and peace to your soul? We'll sing.
2: You give life, You are love, you bring light to the darkness. You give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. This is why we sing it's your breath in our life.
0: chapter seven talks about this great messianic banquet that we'll encounter in heaven where all people are seated. Would you just take a moment picture that? So thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us from sin, for rescuing us from shame and leading us into an easier, lighter life full of joy
4: and rest.
0: Spirit, would you begin to soften our hearts this morning as we hear from your holy word? Spirit, would you speak through Caleb this morning as he brings your message? We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name.
4: Amen. You can take a seat. Well, good morning, fellowship. Hey, my name's Caleb Freeman. I'm the team leader for our student ministries here at the Rogers campus. And as we get ready to continue in our Hebrew series, I want you to think back a little bit. We're going to think about the Old Testament because that's basically what all the book of Hebrews is. And so I want you to go all the way back to the Exodus story. And for those of you who can't remember, if you don't know what that is, Disney made a movie about it. It's called The Prince of Egypt. Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, there's a man in the back shaking his head. He's like, yeah, I don't remember Exodus, but I got, I got the Prince of Egypt in mind. I want you to think about that story, sir, okay? And Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. God has set them, pre- set them free. He's acted on their behalf time and time again. And now the families are walking out of and leaving the only home they've ever known. Now I'm a dad of three, and so I picture a family walking out. And I picture a dad carrying one of his daughters on his shoulders. As they walk out and he's trying to explain to his daughter, hey, this is what's happening. We're actually leaving our home because we're trusting in God and his faithfulness and his willingness to come through on his promises for our behalf. See, sweetie, we're going to go to the promised land. And as he tries to explain that concept to his young daughter, he continues to walk and in the distance he sees the waters. And he continues to notice that Moses is not veering away from these waters at all. The scriptures say that the people encamped in front of the sea and opposite of Baal-Zephon. And I imagine that dad, daughter still on his shoulders, walking up to the edge of the water and just thinking, man, this is inconvenient. Like, Why did we come this way? There's a better route that we could have taken. And as he scans the inconvenience of the sea, he looks over and he sees the mountain of Baal-Zephon, which some scholars actually think is where the Egyptians believed the god of that sea lived. And so he doesn't just see inconveniences. He's reminded of the daunting memories of the past. He remembers his captors and the idols that they served. And then he hears it. He hears the chariots coming, and with his daughter still on his back, he turns around, and he can see the army coming towards them in the face of Pharaoh, And all of a sudden, an inconvenience and a daunting memory has turned into a horrifying reality as the husband and the father is standing there thinking, how are we going to get out of this? He's stuck in a life or death situation, unsure of how to respond. The scriptures say that the people went to Moses and they questioned him. That's probably a nice way of saying that they were screaming at him. And I wonder if it was this dad running to Moses saying, what are you doing? It would have been better for my daughter to live in Egypt serving the Egyptians than for you to walk her out here just to die at their swords. We're stuck. We got nowhere to go. What is going on? And Moses, he looks at people in the eyes and he gives the most incredible call to arms that you'll find. He gives a motivational speech. It's my favorite section of scripture because Moses looks at a people who are, in just this stuckness, if that's a word, and he calls them into faithfulness, a people who are trapped and he tells them to trust. He looks at their uncertainty and says, no, 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 God's acted before, he'll act now. And he gives them this speech, he says three things. He says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord work on your behalf. And you know the story. The people walk on dry ground And what we're going to look at today is that the writer of Hebrews is going to give an equally compelling motivational speech. In our section in Hebrews today, the writer is exhorting his people into faithfulness. And I wonder if he had Moses' speech in mind. I mean, in chapter 11, the writer talks about Moses. He talks about the Israelites walking on dry ground through the sea. Moses' people were stuck The people receiving the letter to the Hebrews, they were stuck. They were being scorned by their Jewish brothers and sisters for leaving the faith. They were mocked by the pagan community for believing in a God that they saw die at the hands of men on a cross. And just as Moses gave three requirements for the faithful living, fear not, stand firm and see, the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage his audience to live faithfully, but also let them know that that requires some action on your part. And he's also gonna give three instances, three action points. He's gonna say, Faithful living requires repentance, endurance, and perspective. And doesn't that line up with Moses's? I mean, Moses said, Fear not. The author of Hebrews says, Repent. But don't so many of our sins just come as a reaction to our fears? Moses says, Stand firm. The writer says, Endure. Moses says, Perceive or see the salvation of the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Christ. If you haven't figured it out already, today we're talking about Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. In the motivational speech, that's what I want you to think of this as. This is a culminating point in the book where the author is giving an exhortation into faithful living. And within that, he tells the people how to live faithfully. The beautiful part about this section is it is simple. You don't have to know your Old Testament. Look, You don't have to know what propitiation means. You don't have to know who Melchizedek is. You don't need a temple diagram organized in your head. Nick, Roland, forget about you. We don't need you this morning. Honestly, that's probably why I'm up here teaching. Sam's fishing, Nick, we don't need him. And so we are going to look at what it means to live faithfully. Just as the writer calls his audience into, he starts off in chapter 12 and he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author starts off and he says something interesting. He says, hey, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, before we get into the requirements, I want to figure out who this is. Because what is this guy talking about? Typically, when we hear this verse, hey, you're surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, we almost picture it like this diagram, that the people reading the letter are the X in the middle. And there's this cloud of the faithful saints of the past, the people in chapter 11, that are just looking over their shoulder, cheering them on. And honestly, Although I think it's partially right, it sounds a whole lot like Return of the Jedi. You got like Ghost Yoda in the background just giving the thumbs up to Luke as he's finally come through and they've defeated evil. I don't think that's what the author is doing here. No, no, no. I think the author does mean that, hey, you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. But we have to ask the question, who are these witnesses witnessing to? And if we read chapter 11, it tells us, and if we read chapter 12, it tells us, and if we consider the whole context of the book of Hebrews, it tells us that these witnesses are witnessing to the faithfulness of God. And so when the writer says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, it is true that the people are surrounded, but they're surrounded in as much as they're shoulder to shoulder with the faithful saints as all of them profess the faithfulness of Christ. His goodness, his grandness, his willingness to come through on their behalf. And this view of it, it actually makes sense within the context. When we ask the question, hey, why would the author write this? Why would he say you're surrounded by a great cloud of witness? It makes sense. He's giving the people a community. Remember these early Christians, they were scorned by their Jewish brothers and sisters. They were mocked by the pagan community. The author's gonna call them into faithfulness. And before he does, He provides a community that they can do that with. He says, you're not alone. You're shoulder to shoulder with the the saints of the past, just gleaming and looking forward to God coming through on your behalf. And let me pause for a second. If you're new to the faith, if you're the only one in your family following after Christ, these are verses of encouragement to you. You're not alone. You're not alone. And the beautiful part is you're not the focus. You get to focus on Christ just with the faithful who have gone before you. After providing a community for the people, the writer continues and says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. What we're going to see is that the author is going to use an analogy of a race in order to describe a life of following after Christ. And within this analogy, the author says, hey, you have to be willing to lay aside your weights and your sins. You have to be willing to lay aside the hindrances, just the distractions, maybe the things that aren't in and of themselves sinful but do deter you from following after Christ, and the sins, the things that are in and of themselves in opposition to the way and the calling of God. And remember, it's within this race analogy, so it's actually a a beckoning into freedom. The author thinks it is ridiculous. How crazy would it be for us to try and run a race bound with our arms tied together, our, le- our legs bound. It'd be crazy. And the author also says, to follow after Christ, giving in to the temptations and the hindrance of this world is ridiculous. How crazy would it be for me to try and run a race with my hands chained together or my shoes untied? It'd be ridiculous. And the author also says, it is ridiculous for us to think that we can chase after Jesus, playing with the sins that torment us. He says, lay both of those things aside, the weight and the sins. Now, I do think scripture is written with purpose. I do believe it's the word of God. And I think each sentence, each word has an intentional meaning. But I think there is some purpose in the ambiguity that the author uses when writing weights and sins. The author doesn't say, lay aside your greed, which clings so closely. Although that probably is true and something that the people needed to do the author also doesn't just say, hey, lay aside your lust. It clings really closely. Get rid of that in order to follow Christ. No, the author leaves it up to weight and sins. That way the audience can apply that to a broad spectrum of ideas within their life. And they have to ask the question, are we willing to lay aside all those things? Now, here's one, one area. I think it gives us a little bit of context to understand something that these early Christians probably were struggling through. And the idea would be Caesar worship. You see, in this time and in this age, everybody worships Caesar. He was a self-professed deity that demanded the worship of himself. And these young Christians no, we're not called into that. We don't bow down before false idols. We don't bow down before other gods. But to not give in or not to partake in the Caesar worship would have led to some mockery. It would have led to some ridicule, and I guarantee you it would have led to some persecution. Can you imagine how tempting it would be for the people reading this letter just to go, I'll, just, I'll concede a little bit. I'll just give in a little bit on my Christian calling. I'll just, I'll just dabble in a little bit of Caesar worship. That way I can catch a break from my community. The author says, no, lay that weight and that temptation aside. And if you've partaken in it already, then lay that sin aside. The first requirement for faithful living is repentance. And I use that word in the fullest sense. I don't just mean saying I'm sorry. I use repentance the way that the scriptures define it, which is to bring our wrongdoings, our mistakes, our sins before the throne of God, offer them to him, knowing that he's the one that forgives us. And then to make a complete 180 degree turn and walk in the other direction, to live faithfully, we have to be people who engage in repentance. The author continues on and doesn't just say, hey, you need to repent. He also says, let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. You see this race analogy continuing. Continues on and the author says, this race that you're running, it's a life of morality and obedience to Christ. through reliance on God's power. That has to be done with endurance. And I think endurance is an interesting word here because it's a little bit of a lost art today. And maybe more than a lost art, endurance, I I believe, is a spiritual muscle. And it's a muscle that we really haven't trained well. And I get it, I'll pause for a second. I am a millennial standing right here talking about endurance to you all, but bear with me. My generation is getting better at it, I promise. I think true spiritual endurance For us to run the race, enduring, it actually requires two character qualities. Spiritual endurance is the crossroads of grit, the ability to take a step even when it's hard, the ability to push on even when it's tough, and faith, a deep-rooted trust in God and his willingness to act on our behalf for his glory, a trust in his sovereignty. Now, this would be awesome if I came up with this on my own. And I was just like, hey, spiritual endurance, two things, grit and faith. Take it, let's go, get some coffee. But I actually say this because I think this is how the writer of Hebrews defines endurance. Right after he calls his people, his audience, into running their race, he says you should do so by looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let me point this out. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is described as enduring the cross. I think the author is making a little bit of a play there. He wants the two uses of the word endurance to just jump off the page to the readers, that they might say, oh, I'm called to endure, and the way that I endure is just how Jesus endured the cross, and we know how he did that, with incredible grit and incredible trust. Think about it. The night he was betrayed, Jesus is in the garden, And he is sweating blood. Now, I know what it's like to sweat. I'm an Arkansas man. I I know the holy waters of humidity. I actually enjoy walking to my car in the morning and needing a towel by the time I get there. But I have never, I have never sweat to the point where I was perspiring blood. And in the fear and the anguish of knowing what was to come, Jesus is sweating blood. And yet, even in that, he took the physical steps. He had the actual physical steps to the location that he knew Judas would betray him, kiss him, and hand him over to his captives. You want to talk about grit. Talk about Jesus walking to the place where he would be betrayed. You want to talk about grit? Think about Jesus carrying the cross to the location that he would be hung on it. You want to think about grit? It's Jesus actually extending his arm not just thinking about the pain that would come, but the wrath of God that would be laid upon him. Jesus, even in the hardship, continued to persevere. But we don't see him just do that. No, in the same time that he's enduring and showing grit, Jesus is also trusting. He's in the garden praying. Saying, Father, let this cup pass from before me, but not my will, your will be done. It's just an unbelievable demonstration of incredible unity and trust between the Father and the Son. When we think of the way that Jesus endured the cross, we have to understand it as the mix of incredible perseverance and an unbelievable unity with the Father. And when the writer of Hebrews tells his audience that they too need to run with endurance, they need to understand that this life, this life lived in faithfulness to Christ, is going to require them to take some steps. But to take some steps with their hand held by Jesus who leads it. To endure means to try and to trust. To endure means to pray and to work. To endure means to walk hand in hand with your Lord. That becomes the second requirement for faithful living. And there's one more. After calling the people to run with endurance the race set before them, the author says, do so looking to Jesus. The author insists that the audience gaze be rooted in, it be anchored in Christ. And the reason why is because he says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith who endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you see this word founder in in your translations, it might say author, it might say pioneer, Think example. Jesus is the example for our life. He's the one who lived how we couldn't, a sinless life in complete unity with the Father. And as the example, he didn't just live how we couldn't, he also died how we should. He is the one who endured the cross. It says it right there. But we don't just look to Jesus as our founder and our example, we also look to him as the perfecter, When you hear that word, I want you to think enabler. As the perfecter, Jesus is the one who actually enables us to respond in faith. Jesus is the one who enables us to follow through with the example that he set. As the perfecter, Jesus is the one who rose to new life so that you and I might rise to new life. As the perfecter, Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. You see, when the, when the author says, look to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter, again, I think he's actually making a little bit of play on the words. In Greek, the words founder and perfecter, they sound really similar to beginning and end. Isn't that cool? The author is saying that Jesus is the one who initiated and completed the faith. He's the beginning and the end, the way, the truth, the life. There is no faith apart from a faith in Christ. And if you take Jesus out of the equation, you've got nothing. The author says, cast your gaze on him. Live like him. Live in him. Jesus is the call. And he's also the means to achieving it. Jesus is the goal. And he's the source for getting there. Jesus is the destination. And he's the map that steers us on our way to it. The author, when he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. He is exhorting the people to live like Christ and live in Christ. Ultimately, to have a new perspective, a holy perspective, a perspective that can see Jesus even in the midst of the hardship, that can see the giver before they even see the gift, a perspective that has eternity in mind, redemption at hand, and I imagine a perspective very similar to the one that the cloud of witnesses would have. It's focused not on self and not on situation, but on Christ and redemption. The three requirements for a faithful living, I mean, they were, they were the same for Moses, they the same for the writer of Hebrews. I'll give you a hint. I think they're the same for us. Faithful living requires us to repent, to endure, and to take on a new perspective. But the question then becomes, fellowship, how do we do this? How do we actually live out this faithful life with these requirements? Let's run through it. I think we become a people who actively repent, who actively lay aside our weights and sins. You see, the world loves to tell us that true freedom is found in a life with no boundaries. Let me just break the news to you. That is not freedom, that's called chaos. True freedom is found in a life that lives within the boundaries of God. Read Genesis. Within the boundaries of God, there is purpose and there is peace. There's prosperity, there's gentleness, there's welcome, uh, welcoming spirit. And yet this world constantly tempts us to move just outside the boundaries a little bit. Just take one step further. Just give up a little bit. Are you sure that's what the Word of God says? Doesn't that sound just like what the original audience went through? That we would concede just a little bit in our Christian faith, just partake in a little bit of Caesar worship, that we might catch a break from our community. In today's world, to have a sexual ethic is ridiculed. How tempting would it be for us, fellowship, to concede a little bit in our Christian calling and our Christian beliefs in order to catch a break from our neighbors, our community, and our government. We're not called to catch a break. We're called into new life. Jesus says you're born again. Paul says that the old is gone, the new is come, you're a new creation. Live the life of laying aside your weights and sins and running the freedom that God has granted you. There are a lot of weights that, that I can picture in my life that I have to be willing to lay aside. Remember, those weights are things that aren't in and of themselves sinful, but are distracting and deterring to my pursuit of Christ. And if I were in the student room right now, if I was over in the FSM room, I'd probably lean over. And I'd preface it some way. i go, okay, I know you guys think I'm old because I'm about to say this, but is social media a weight in your life? And I'd start throwing up pictures of TikTok and Instagram. For you all, I would have put up a picture of Facebook. Let me give you a hint. If you, Don't say Facebook in front of somebody 18 and under. You immediately lose all credibility. But I think the same is true. Does social media not become a weight to us, a hindrance to us? It's a tool for connection that quickly becomes a portal to comparison, discontentment, and anger. Are you willing to lay aside a weight that holds you back from following after Christ? And maybe insecurities is it that we quickly believe the lies of the evil one far more surely than we believe the the, the truths of Jesus. I mean, that's my life. I was weighted by insecurities, hindered by the untruths. And it took a long time for me to be willing to bring those to the Lord daily. I think one of the biggest weights that we endure is probably busyness. Maybe it's not just our own, but it's our kids as well. We become obsessed with doing rather than being, thinking about dates and activities, meetings and times far more than we can even imagine participating in spiritual disciplines and holy habits. I mean, it is ridiculous today, to think about taking a Sabbath day, not because that sounds unbelievably spiritual or religious, but because to many of us, it seems impossible to put a screen down for a day. Are we willing to lay aside the weights that prohibit us from running with freedom towards Christ? And the sins are there too, whether it's greed, idolatry, or pride. Fellowship, will we be people who actually repent of our sins and don't just confess to them, but actually begin to walk in a life that distances ourselves from them? I mean, lust is rampant in our culture. If you look at our entertainment, it is so filled with sexual immorality. I actually think that sexual immorality has become our entertainment. Are we willing to bring our pornography addiction, our affair to our spouse and to the throne of God and actually repent before them? Say, I'm sorry, please forgive me and turn away and walk in fidelity towards the Lord and our spouse because that's what it requires to live a, fa- to live a faithful life. You've got to be willing to lay aside the weights and the sins. But let me give you a little, a little breath of fresh air for a second. Remember, this isn't a fire and brimstone talk. No, this is a motivational speech that the author gives. But this is where joy is found in faithfulness. True life is found within the boundaries of God. Just like the author says, fellowship, lay aside the weights and sins. Stop trying to run your life entangled by your hindrances and your past mistakes. Lay them before the Father who joyfully forgives you. Receive that and then walk in the calling that he's placed on your life that's what you were made to do but you weren't just made to repent as you live faithfully you're also called to endure and remember spiritual endurance has got two parts yet the problem is we forget one of those usually we're really good at the grit at least if you're me man i can grin and bear it for a while i can white knuckle my faith with the best of them if i just try hard enough then I'm sure I'll be patient. If I just try hard enough, then I'm sure I'll trust. If I just try hard enough, then I can transform my own heart into being a kind person. But let me just say this. Spiritual endurance that only has grit and doesn't have faith is just another form of pride. It's just self-idolatry wrapped up in some better words. And on the other side, this life that says, oh, I fully trust, but No action is ever taken. And that might be represented through something like this. A a life that says, Father, give me the chance to minister to those who are in need around me. And yet never knocks on the door of their neighbor's house to introduce themselves. Or a life that says, Father, give me the chance to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And then goes to the same coffee shop week after week, seeing the same barista never asks to hear their story or asks to share their own. You see, just like grit without faith is just pride, a willingness to pray and ask but never act is far more closely related to fear than it is to faith. What would it look like if we merged those two as we endure? If we're people who try and do everything on our own, what would it look like to slow down a little bit and pray before we act? And on the other side, what would it look like if we actually begin to continue to pray but then take the steps that the Lord is leading us in. Fellowship, to live faithfully, we too have to endure. And finally, we need a perspective, a a holy perspective, a new lens to see this world, a, a worldview, a Christian worldview that is found by fixing our eyes on Christ. We would look to him as our founder, the example for how to live. Would we be people who would envelop ourselves so much so in the Gospels that we would actually know the way that Jesus responds to the world. Not only would we look to him as our example, but we would also look to him as our perfecter, knowing that he is the one who enables us to follow through with the example that he set. How do we gain that perspective? What do we do to be able to see this world and while we look at this world, also see Jesus as the founder and the perfecter? Well, it's really simple we engage in the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices. You might call them holy habits. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, it's things like scripture reading, scripture memory, fasting. Christians today can fast. Prayer, thanksgiving, worship, meditation, contemplation, silence, solitude. You see, the spiritual disciplines are actually tools that God has given us. And they're the tools that God has given us to open up our eyes to be able to see him. As I read the Bible, I see the Lord for who he proclaims himself to be. It's his words, not how I want to see him. And as I pray and listen, I actually hear Jesus respond to me and tell me the things he wants me to know about himself, not what I pretend to make up about him. As I sit in silence and give thanks, I actually feel the grace, the mercy. I see the justice of God. You see, the spiritual disciplines are the tools that enable us to see Jesus. And yet at the same time, they are the tools that God uses to sanctify us, to make us like him. They enable us to see the founder. And they're also the tools that the Perfector uses to make us more and more like him. You see, if we want a holy perspective, we've got to live like Christ and in Christ. And the way that happens is by partaking in the disciplines The spiritual practices. You see, fellowship, if if we were to take this motivational speech that Moses gave, that the author of Hebrews gave, and we were to apply it to ourselves, if we were going to say, hey, what would what would this writer say to us? It would be so simple, so encouraging, and it would require a lot. But it would say, Hey, fellowship, live faithfully by beholding Jesus. In everything you do, behold Jesus as you repent recognizing that you can bring him your wrongdoings, your temptations, your sins, and he's the one who forgives you. That's the best life. There's no shame where you're invited and Jesus has invited you into his presence. Go there bringing everything with you that you might walk in freedom with him the other direction. Live freely and faithfully as you behold Jesus while you endure, recognizing this life is hard, And that we get to walk it hand in hand with Christ. And when you walk hand in hand with somebody, especially Jesus, he gets to lead. But we still have steps to take. And finally, fellowship, that we would live faithfully by beholding Jesus as we fix our eyes on him, realizing he's the founder and the perfecter who endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let this be true of us. Father, thanks for these people. Thanks for their willingness to follow after you. Jesus, thank you for yourself. You're our example and you're our enabler. Would you make these words true in our lives, Father? Would you make us people who repent, people who endure, and people who perceive? We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.
0: our eyes on Jesus, we ask that he's our firm foundation, he's where we build our lives on, so would you stand and sing this with us, he's worthy, prepare our hearts to go, I'd love to read the passage from today over us. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fellowship, what a great morning getting to sing sing praises to our God. If you need prayer this morning, we do have the hills in the prayer room over to my left and to your right. Have a great week, fellowship. We'll see you next week.